You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. In 1955, the public held in their hand a highly anticipated book that they'd been waiting for. They had read the first two volumes. They wanted to read this third volume. These three volumes together were originally intended by the author to be six books. He did not think that any publisher, let alone a reader, would pick up a book of over a thousand pages, and so he wrote such a story in order for it to be over a spread of six books, but the publisher took a brave, bold step and put them into three books and released them, the first two just a year before, in 1954. They had known of this author before. His earliest work came out in 17 years earlier, known as The Hobbit. This book that they had been anticipating now, the third in this series that he was writing at that time, is known as the return of the king. The return of the king. Interestingly, Tolkien never wanted the last book, J.R. Tolkien, that is, the author of this book, never wanted the last book to be titled The Return of the King. He, he felt like it revealed too much. It kind of gave it away. Oh, so that's what happens. Well, thanks for giving it away. I don't have to read it now. Instead, he preferred his title that he first gave it, excuse me, The War of the Ring. But the publisher decided otherwise, and it became The Return of the King, telling the story of the armies of Mordor being defeated and Aragorn being eventually seated on his rightful throne as the reign of the king begins. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about The Return of the King. But not a fictitious king named Aragorn. I want to talk to you about the return of the true king, Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to hear his words and read them for yourself. And to do so, I need you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Now, as you turn to Matthew 23, your phone, your tablet, and the Bible of print, let me just say to you at the outset, first of all, if you'd like a copy of the Bible, we have them for free for you to take home with you. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, they're at the Welcome Center there for you. Feel free to grab one of those. You can just go back there and grab one. They're glad to give you one. For those of you who are just joining us and have been with us in the last couple of weeks at Grace Church, you may be a little bit disoriented. Last Sunday was exceptional. We were in Acts 14. The Sunday before, we had a special guest, and that was significant in Luke chapter 1. Before that, because of COVID and a number of us being sick, we also had a special message from 1 Samuel. Before that, we took a look indeed at Luke chapter 2. So it's been a number of weeks where we have been as a church prior, and that is making our way through the writings of Matthew, known as the gospel of Matthew, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're new to Christianity, this is one of the four eyewitness account representations of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a significant work. Significant because it's one of the two of the four writers that was actually with him in person. 
the other person being John. Mark was not, Luke was not, but they're both credible witnesses to the life of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. We've been learning over these last number of months just the radical nature of not only Jesus' teaching, as even the crowd was shocked in Matthew chapter 7, they says that they were astonished. He taught not as their scribes, but he taught as one with authority. It's not only his words, though, it was actually his works. He could do things that they had never seen before. He could heal people that no physician could ever change. He could exercise demons that no one could ever seem to have power over. And even more credible and phenomenal was, he took the religious leaders of that time and basically turned them upside down in their heads, showing how they had so pervertedly misrepresented God's word to God's people. In fact, a number of weeks back, that's where we were in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus' last public sermon, it is just a blistering report, one after the other after the other, to these crowds, specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees. In chapter 23, verse 1, he spoke about speaking to the crowds and his disciples about the scribes and Pharisees and how they're hypocrites, how they say things that they do not do. And then in chapter 23, verse 13, he directs his attention now to the scribes and the Pharisees. And just one after the other, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Just blisteringly coming in verse 13, again verse 16, again verse 23, again verse 25, again verse 27, and then lastly in verse 29 again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That brings us up to our text today. Matthew chapter 23, two scenes, but one conversation we're going to have this morning. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, and then Matthew 24, verses 1 to 14. First of all, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, we're going to see Jesus' care for people. Jesus' care for people. Follow along with me as I read to you the following three verses. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, now let me just make sure you know what's happening in this scene because there's a couple things that if they're missed, you're going to be so disoriented and confused. So this is about Wednesday in the middle of the Passion Week of Jesus' final life here before his crucifixion, resurrection, appearing to witnesses, and then ascension. Just two days earlier, he comes into this town of Jerusalem with a crowd behind him, with an entourage, and then the crowd in front of him, and they're like declaring to him how great he is. But, but they're merely giving kind of lip service. 
They long for a Savior, which He eventually will not provide for them in the way in which they wanted it and the time in which they wanted it. And so as we're going to see in the coming days, the crowd basically turns on Him. But as he comes into town, he's in the temple day one, day two. In each of these interactions, he's doing anything from flipping over tables to confronting religious leaders. And it's turning heads. It's starting conversations. And you can imagine if the crowd is already amazed wherever he goes at the authority in which he teaches, as I said back in Matthew 7, this was notably mindful, notably represented by Matthew, even more they sing here because it was just a few minutes earlier in the text that he's declaring to all the scribes and the Pharisees, they're seeming religious leaders, hey, they're kind of pastors of the day, hey, all of you guys are jacked up, all of you guys are hypocrites, all of you guys need to like quit your jobs because you're failing entirely in your responsibilities. And now he turns for his final conversation with Jerusalem. Now you have to understand the significance about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. It is the place where the people of Israel, subscribers to it wanting to be a part of this, wanted to see indeed what God was doing in their midst. And so they went to the temple where they'd offer these sacrifices. And priests would represent the people to God and offer these sacrifices, happening day after day after day after day. Jesus addressing the people, referring to the entire city, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This double statement, this repetitive statement is a Statement of like an endearing. It's, 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 a, it's a kind of way of verbally being able to say sincerely, hear me. Hear me. Already in how he addresses these people as he speaks to Jerusalem, he's speaking to all the people of Israel. And then he makes this sort of stunning statement. He says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You can imagine some listeners like, I never did that. I I have never picked up a rock my entire life and thrown it at anybody, let alone a prophet. Could I I get free of that accusation? Could I? I'm, I'm not with them. But Jesus is making a statement about all of the people being represented by these people and their actions. It was just earlier, if you'll look back at verse 34... Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, look at what he says in verse 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Why? Because if you go back earlier to verse 30, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of prophets. And Jesus is like, that's not true. You reject their teaching, you reject me, he said. So Jesus is speaking about this. But what's so stunning is not his tone or even the words he uses. He didn't speak with sort of like a declarative, I'm done with you. Look, look at what he says out of his act of compassion. Look how he says it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus is extending himself. He was like, I would have wished for anything to have cared for you. The imagery he uses, you don't have to sort of like, you know, reach for a preacher's illustration. He's given the illustration. He's like, hey, just like a hen would sort of gather 
her little, you know, chicklings underneath her to kind of protect him from the storm. He's like, I would wish for you to have that kind of protection. But look at what he says. You were not willing. What's the result? Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is interesting because if you go back to chapter 21, just look back in your Bibles, chapter 21. So there's Jesus coming into town. Verse 8, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if you're remembering that text, you're reading the text, I'm confused. Didn't they already do this? Does Jesus have like the wrong zip code? Right sermon, wrong people? No. No, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what we're going to learn in the coming weeks. What was said in chapter 21 was not meant as that very crowd who is calling for him to be praised is later calling for him to be crucified. Jesus is saying, this is basically it. You will not see me again. This marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has come to the city for the last time. The residents there had their last opportunity of welcoming him, and they had refused to accept him. There would not be another chance. He's basically citing of what's the Psalm 118, verse 26. He's identifying himself here as God's Savior and Messiah, coming to his people, but his people rejecting him. I want you to recognize two things here in this text under just our first part here of Jesus' care for people. First of all, recognize the compassion of Jesus. The compassions of Jesus. Just see how compassionate he is. How I would have gathered you. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is not some angry spiritual parent always yelling at you because no matter what you do, you can never please him. This is a loving God who with compassion was extending grace upon grace upon grace. And then secondly, I want you to also recognize here in the text, not just the compassion of Jesus, also the call of Jesus. Those who are not willing. He's talking about those who reject Christ. Those who reject him. Friends, you don't have to go back 2,000 years to be on sight to hear that conversation unfold. You can be sitting right here today in this room and basically have that same conversation be brought in front of you by the reading of the Word of God. Because that same invitation that Jesus is extending then to them is being extended to you today. Notice the problem. Verse 37, the very end. They were not willing. Are you? Are, are, are you willing to see Christ as Savior? Are you willing to take your life and lay it before him and say, you could do better with my life than ever, I could ever do. You can save me. I cannot save myself. You are the answer to the problems that all I can see and more. Only you, Christ, can I find hope and forgiveness, peace and security. 
Jesus extends the same type of shelter he's extending to them, the same type of protection he's offering them, and the question is, today, would you respond to that invitation? That is Jesus' care for people in the very end of chapter 23. Now, secondly, let's look at Jesus' promise of problems to come. Jesus' promise of problems to come. Now, beginning chapter 24, sort of continuing in this transition, what ends up happening here is we're introduced to what's known as the Olivet Discourse. That might be very strange to you. It's basically based on the idea of what it says there, that he is at the Mount of Olives in verse 3. Chapter 24, he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, that does not mean he's sitting on a big old pile of olives. Some people might seriously think that. I love olives. They're like, that could be legit seat. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a geographical place in Israel by Jerusalem, this place where there would be olive trees, and this is where he's at, and it says he sits because in a traditional rabbinical fashion, that's what a rabbi would do. He would sit while other people would teach. In fact, probably not a bad idea. No, I'm just kidding. And so chapter 24 and 25 is known as the Olivet Discourse. Discourse is like another word for his, his speech, his sermon he gives, except he's not talking to all the crowds, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples, and we can see that in the beginning of chapter 24. There's five times in the book of Matthew that Jesus has major times of teaching, sometimes referred to as five discourses. Chapters 5 to 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapters 18 to 20, and then chapters 24 and 25, which is our final time here that Jesus is giving this presentation of truth. And this really kind of encapsulates these five sections of teaching in Matthew, kind of encapsulates all of Jesus' most comprehensive collection of his teaching. It gives us a complete picture of the Christian life and obedience to Christ. This has been used, these five sections, by disciples for years to be disciples as Christians, as followers of Christ. We come now to chapters 24 and 25, which are intended to give Jesus' disciples a prophetic overview of the events that will take place in the near future and in the distant future. If you're kind of wondering how this breaks down, let me explain it to you like this. The teaching of Jesus in these next two chapters can be divided into three parts. Verses 4 to 31 is the chronological, the kind of time-sequencing description of the events before Jesus' return. Verses 36 of chapter 24 into verse 30 of chapter 25 is the lessons on being prepared for Jesus' return, what we should be learning. And the very end of chapter 25, verse 31 to 46, is the warning of judgment and promise of reward when Jesus returns. I'm just trying to give you a sense of overview, like where are we, Right? Sometimes when I visit Aventura Mall, like this past week, I'm trying to find something. I have no clue where to go in that mall. Put your hand up if you've ever been lost at Aventura Mall. Put your hand up if you're like, Aventura Mall is just too bougie for me. I can't go. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I know. I feel you judging me. I go up to the directory. I push where I want to go. It tells me where I want to go. What I'm trying to do right now is just trying to give you a map of where you are in Matthew, chapter 24, in the middle of this conversation Jesus is having, answering questions his disciples are asking. So that's what I've given you behind me on the screen. But now let's begin to zoom in, look closely, and listen as I read to you chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to a point 
came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So he's starting to walk away. Disciples are tapping on the shoulder. I want to talk about the temple. But he answered them. You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead you, they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What a change up in a conversation. I mean, think about it. In verse 1, the disciples are like, Check out the temple. And Jesus is like, it's all going to be destroyed. I mean, this conversation goes from architectural impressiveness to apocalyptic imperatives. It goes from beholding something great to Jesus saying, I'm going to tell you something even greater. In verse 2, Jesus goes right into the prophesying of the destruction of the temple. Now, what's so kind of head-turning historically is that this very event took place in AD 70. About 40 years after this conversation, this is exactly what took place in Jerusalem. The Roman army came in under Titus and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And Jesus is not literally saying here, there's not a single brick that will be stacked on top of it. No, he's saying the whole thing will be torn down. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you'll find at best the Wailing Wall as a part of that old temple, but that's all that remains. What you're going to see here in the text before you is Jesus talking about two judgments. Sometimes Jesus, what Jesus is doing is referring to the coming judgment on Jerusalem, a judgment that happened in the destruction of the city in AD 70, and sometimes he's talking about what's going to refer to the judgment at the end of the age. This has not happened yet. Now, let me just say at the outset, Christians love talking about eschatology. I mean, seriously, we say, hey, for the next 16 weeks, we're going to do a serious eschatology. I guarantee your attendance would, would double. People love to the book of Revelation. They might not know Galatians or Ephesians, but Revelation. 
Let's talk about the horns. Let's talk about the beasts. And that's certainly appropriate. It is in the Bible. But let me just say here, what you have here in chapter 24 is a condensed, in chapter 25, is a condensed representation of eschatology. Eschatology is a big, big term. It means end times. It's a condensed version. I say this because inevitably somebody here is going to think at the end of the sermon, but you did not say, yes, friend, that's true of every sermon, just so we're clear. More to be said from other texts, more to be said about that text, but enough time. I don't think anybody here wants to do like, you know, lunch together in this room with no food. So for the time we have, let's begin to work through this together to understand what it is that Jesus was saying when he's talking to his disciples that we today would understand it as well and learn from it. What we may argue well here is that there's theological unity between the two judgments. And some of what Jesus says could apply equally to, to both the present judgment that would eventually come in AD 70, but more importantly, the ultimate judgment that would come at the end of the age. One writer, Tasker, writes the following. As the language in which these events is expressed is partially, partly literal and partly symbolic, and as Jesus would seem to have regarded both of them as comings in judgment, scholars have found it extremely difficult to say with any degree of certainty which parts of the chapter contain the answer to the question of the disciples, when shall these things be, referring to the structure of the temple buildings being mentioned in verse 2, and which parts are response to the supplementary question and what about the sign of that coming and of the end of this world? Because what you see in verse 3, Jesus goes from talking about the destruction of the temple to something much more. Look, if you would, back at verse 3. Sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and asking. They basically asked three questions. They're basically like, okay, hold on a second. We just went from talking about how impressive the temple is. So you're like, okay, just so you know, the whole thing's going to be destroyed. They're like, wait, what? You could just imagine the disciples like following him like, hey, uh, we have a question, teacher, I have a question. Uh, is this a good time? Is this a good time? Is there a good time? When is a good time? We could ask some questions because that thing being destroyed, that means all kinds of questions. Matthew only records three, but we have to imagine they had more than three, right? I mean, you could just imagine like a bunch of children want to ask the parent like, hey, we're going to go on vacation. Like when, where, with who, to do what? I mean, you could just imagine the amount of questions. We're going to move. We'd like to know when. How's this going to happen? So Jesus is saying, hey, that temple that you see, the entire thing's going to be destroyed. We have questions, Jesus. There are questions that are recorded, three of them. When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of Jesus coming back? When will the end of the age happen? Jesus' answer basically has a twofold focus. As much of the Old Testament prophecy has a twofold focus. For example, Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, tells David that his offspring will sit on his throne. And it's fulfilled in Solomon. But no consistent Bible-reading Christian thinks that was the fullness of that fulfillment. But instead, the ultimate reference to being Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, as is often prophesied and fulfilled in Christ. Well, here in the text, 
this morning, the predictions of this little apocalypse, as the chapter is sometimes called, focusing on the first instance of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but there's an ultimate fulfillment in the end of the world when Jesus talks about the impact of calamity so great that people will flee to the mountains and with expressed sorrow for those who are pregnant and those who are nursing, focusing on the fall to come. And it really kind of goes around verse 8. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says the following, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. What you're seeing here in verses 3 through 14 are the birth pains that will come, that will take place before the return of Christ. And you can kind of see what will take place. Now, this idea of birth pains just to kind of put it in the kind of vernacular that Jesus is using, birth pains, as every mother who's delivered here can speak to from personal experience, there is something glorious coming, a child, through a painful process prior to that moment. Whether it be by natural, by C-section, there's going to be a, a, a painful process, but a glorious result. Jesus grabs a hold of this phrase and uses the same type of word picture as to reality what's going to take place. There is going to be problems like we could not imagine, but a Savior that will come beyond our wildest dreams. And what are these birth pains? Well, first of all, verses 4 to 8, there will be suffering throughout the world. There will be suffering throughout the world. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name and saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. You can imagine why many Christians during World War I and then later subsequently World War II, when literally felt like the entire world was in war, thought, it's happening. It's happening. There have been previous times throughout history that Christians have predicted that they could know and guess when this was going to take place. I'm reminded of what we'll see in the coming weeks of verse 36 of chapter 24. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. A text we'll look at in more detail, but one funny story I must share with you now on those who otherwise think that they know. There was a man by the name of uh, Edgar, Edgar Wisenant. Edgar Wisenant was a former NASA engineer and a student of the Bible who predicted the return of Christ, specifically in his, in his theology, the rapture, in 1988, somewhere between September 11th and September 13th. I don't know why I just say it's September 12th. He published a book titled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That's creative. Very generously, with the publisher's help and a donor's help, he mailed 300,000 copies of this book to pastors around the country. 
And he sold four and a half million copies of the book. Well, here's the problem, as your existence here today shows, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I, I don't know what Bible he was studying, but apparently he didn't get to verse 36. But he was not discouraged. I am not kidding you. As the date approached, there was even regular programming on Christian Trinity Broadcast Network where they interrupted their normal broadcast to provide special instructions on how to prepare for the rapture. Okay, people, here's what you want to wear. Uh, you don't want to be in a car. And on and on, you can imagine these instructions to be. When it did not happen, he was not dismayed. He followed up with a later book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. That didn't happen. 1993, another one. 1994, another one. And you can imagine the sales began to diminish. Like, okay, dude. At some point, I don't know who's the bigger sucker, you or us here. I say that because as we read the text, the temptation for us is to try to match up declaration of details Jesus is giving with particular time and sequence to say, oh, here, oh, here. And while I commend that expectancy and desire for preparation and receptivity, that we'll learn in the coming days, I think we should speak with humility of the difficulty of these things. For now, it suffices to see in these verses that there will be suffering. Secondly, we can see in verses 9 to 13, they're not just suffering throughout the world, they'll be suffering for Christ's followers. Suffering for Christ's followers. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver, up to you, deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says there will be suffering for Christ's followers. And third, there will yet still be preaching of the gospel to the nations, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. With the limitation of time we have and more time to be spending these texts in the coming weeks, let me give you these four points to consider. What do you do with this? 2022, here in Miami today, sitting here, what do you do with this text, which either seems so historically absent or so futuristically disconnected what does this do for you today? How do you connect this? Four things. Number one, we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning. Did you miss, I hope you did not, how many times Jesus says that people will come in his name declaring I am the Christ and they will lead many astray? How many times it says many will be led astray? Friends, one of the greatest gifts to false teachers today is biblical illiteracy in our churches. One of the greatest gifts to cults today is you not knowing your Bible well at all. Only to be sprinkled with a few bad books that just teach you bad doctrine and then you are just ripe to be led astray. Friends, we would do well to realize reading of the Bible is not like just sort of like taking vitamin A or C or D. Is there a vitamin A? Yes. 
I felt confident about C and D. I've taken C and D. I don't know about A. I'll see Sylvia Hudson later for my vitamin A. Sylvia, where are you at? There you are. Instead, I'm talking about you are preparing for the reality that people intend to get you to be deceived by a false Christ or get you to deny Christ. And the question is, if they came to you today, how prepared would you be for that? Secondly, we need to be aware. So that's the same. It's not the same. Why? Because here I'm talking about this idea of wars and rumors of wars, nation rise up against nation. Here's what I think has been awfully interesting. I think COVID, and I do not mean to speak insensitively at all to those who have struggled with COVID personally or have seen others struggle or painfully lost loved ones. I want to be very clear about that. I'm not speaking as some young 22-year-old who thinks I am immortal. I'm speaking as a 48-year-old who has asthma, lifelong asthma, and as I speak to you now, has 53% lung capacity on my best day. That's before I get COVID, and I've had COVID. That's before I get bronchitis or pneumonia. That's before I come over and visit you and find out you have a cat in your apartment and I freak out. (laughs) My point is this. I think COVID has given Christians a fire drill. That honestly, before COVID, we had fire drills, and after COVID, we're going to have other fire drills. How aware are you that difficult times will come? How surprised are you by difficult times? And how much have the difficult times exposed, helpfully, may I add, as a point of maturity, opportunity for growth, exposed fear, a disliking of discomfort, anxiety? Friends, as surprising as this might sound, those are good gifts from God to show you you're trusting in something else other than him. He is telling these people. I mean, listen, they think of the context. They're talking beautiful architecture of the temple. And Jesus is like, speaking of the temple, nations are going to kill nations. People are going to be so destroyed. If you're pregnant, you're going to resent being pregnant. Like, that's serious pain. You're like, um, wow, that got dark fast. My point is this. I think Christians, and I mean this with all gentleness, need to be more aware, friends, suffering presently or futuristically with our own personal challenges or national challenges. It's just a reality to this world. We're not overrun by it. We're not amazed by it. We're not destroyed by it. We're just like, yep, I didn't know the details, but here it is again. More time could be spent on that, but let's keep going. Number three, we need to be courageous. We need to be discerning, we need to be aware. Third, we need to be courageous. Why do I say that? Well, can you imagine why the people want to give up on Christ? Yeah, look at verse 9. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation, they're going to put you to death, they're going to hate you. I mean, some people don't even like it, like just being called a Christian at work. You're like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? You'll tell them everything you did except go to church. Because what will happen when they hear that you went to church? Like, Wow. What I'm talking about is Jesus is describing a time where people are actually physically suffering. He used the phrase, put you to death. 
I mean, we just kind of went from like VBS Christianity to like grad school Christianity. We went from like, hey, who wants Jesus and cupcakes? I love cupcakes, by the way. Like, hey, who wants Jesus and a saw? Hebrews 11. Uh, can I go the cupcake route, please? I was hoping for Jesus and prosperity. You're talking about Jesus and possible suffering. We need courage in our Christianity. Fourth and final, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. What's so sad in the text, what Jesus says? Many will be led astray. Verse 12, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then look at verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. <clears throat> so here's what's amazing. People are struggling. People are being killed. Christians, nations are fighting. And somewhere along the way, other Christians are like, hey, I will go. Syria, sign me up. You pray for Sweden, I'll go to Sweden. You're, you're praying for Switzerland? I'll go to Switzerland. Where, where do you want me to go? In fact, you know what? <clears throat> Let me just be faithful to where God has sent me right now in my neighborhood. I, I don't mind someone calling me stupid. I don't mind losing friends. It'll pain me to see my family think I'm a fool. I don't want that to be the case. But I'm willing to be accepted by Christ and rejected by others in order that others might know Christ, including my family and friends. We spoke of this last week. It connects well to us here. Paul was stoned. They thought him to be dead. He was unconscious. He got up and he went back to the people's town that stoned him. In this text, people are being killed for being Christians. Other Christians are not being killed. Go tell others you should become Christians. That's a fool for Christ. You got to imagine if you're a non-Christian, like, wait, let me see if I get this right. You want me to give my life to Christ in order that I might end up having the consequence of now these people who once liked me, rejecting me, and maybe killing me. And the Christian's like, I don't, what's, what's the problem? To be loved by God is to be secure for all of eternity. The question is not if you're going to die. The question is when and how you're going to die. And how are you going to live until that day? This is a call for us as Christians to grow up into Christian maturity. For some of us, it's growing up in biblical maturity. Others of us, it's growing up into emotional maturity. Yet others of us, it's perhaps growing up into evangelistic maturity. One thing is certain, the Christian life is not a joke. It's not out of control. If you are a Christian, you're good. God knows and works all things for your good and his glory. And if you're not, then unlike Israelites of old, may you today be willing to come to Christ because you will find protection in him and the promise of eternal life that he will gather his people to himself and protect them, as it says later in the chapter, which we'll see in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. 
If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.